reproducibility and good coding practices and documentation take some time overhead and take a, a little bit of patience. But just 20% of the effort can really reap you 80% of the benefits. Welcome to the Reproducibility Podcast, an open science podcast featuring early career researchers. I'm your host, Will Nyam, currently a postdoc at the University of Chicago, which is on the unceded lands of the Kickapoo, Peoria, Miami, and Potawatomi nations. In this episode, I'm co-hosting with Jan. Hey, I'm a PhD fellow at the IT University of Copenhagen in Denmark. And today, we're joined by a very special guest, uh, Anna Trishovich. Uh, Hi! Would you like to introduce, yeah, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, absolutely. It's great to be here. Uh, my name is yes, Anna Trishovich, and I am a research associate at uh, Harvard University. I have two affiliations, uh, one with a group at the School of Public Health called the National Studies on Air Pollution and Health, and the second with uh, the Institute of Quantitative Social Science, or IQSS, at Harvard. Great. Cool, cool. Uh, so firstly, how are things for both of you? Uh, it's conference season, change of weather, things going all, up, all right? <laughs> I, I'm finally over my hay fever. So, nice. <laughs> but uh, you know how I'm currently looking for um, a grant for reproducibility? Kind of, mm-hmm. um, you know, getting a, a little bit of money. Um, you know, fostering transparency. Turns out the second biggest uh, private funder in Denmark is um, Velox, the window people. So oh. I think I'm going to write them an email because if one, you know, company's interest in transparency, I hope it's the fucking <laughs> window people. So. They're very, very invested in transparency. <laughs> yeah, hope you think, right? So cross your fingers. We'll see how that goes. Uh, so good. Uh, yeah. How are you, Anna? I'm good, thank you. It's um, it's nice. The weather is starting to be nice, though it's very hectic in Boston. I feel we get a few days of hot weather and then we get a few days of, of cold weather. Um, I don't have any conferences or grants, grant proposals right now, but hopefully it, they will be later in the summer when the weather actually becomes nicer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're all getting busy when there are those few nice warm days before it goes away again, you mean? Yes, I don't know how it is in Denmark, but here definitely it's uh, just, uh, I feel like uh, two days of hot hot weather and then we go back to the winter jackets or coats. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so uh, now we great. just have a lot of wind here, but uh, you live. Yeah, I remember I, I lived in Chicago a few years ago and uh, there at least the weather, okay, the weather was also hectic, but then at least when it was winter, it was really cold and wintry and the summer was somehow, there was, I think, more consistency. Yeah, we're coming out of our winter now and it's like been a long winter and everyone's just waiting for the summer. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we should probably get on to the episode on what we're actually talking about today, um, which is we're going to be talking about good coding practices. Moving on to our first segment, which is our appetizer. Um, yeah, with a, we're trying to sort of focus on best coding practices for computational reproducibility, which uh, I think is an important feature of replicable science, 
being able to execute the research code or the scripts that run the experiments or the code that conducts the statistical analysis, mm. uh, having those things be re-executable seems to be a really important component of reproducible science. Uh, yeah, so our appetizer is uh, a notable paper by our special guest, uh, published in 2022, uh, called A Large-Scale Study on Research Code Quality and Execution. Uh, do you want to give us a quick rundown of that paper? Maybe the story behind it or how it came about? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was a very interesting paper, very interesting to work with, and also had interesting outcomes. So the motivation behind the paper uh, was, yeah, just the fact that now more and more sciences are moving toward computational research. So everything is mm. done with the research code and on computers, right? The more sciences have big data. So I was working with um, IQSS with the Dataverse team. So that's a uh, data repository and we noticed that um, more and more data sets which are the bundles of data and code uh, have uh, code code files so it's not it was not just about sharing data it was about sharing both data and code mm-hmm. even though uh, the 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 word dataverse comes from like universe of data right <laughs> so essentially uh, you know 10 years ago we had uh, less than or maybe 10% of the data sets containing code files and today that number is almost like 40 percent of the data sets uh, contain some code files mm-hmm. so we wanted to learn more about uh, these replication packages um, so there are two ideas two motivation points the first one is that we wanted to learn how they are documented how the code is structured uh, what is kind of like the nature of these files, are they big or small? And the second is we want to learn what is the quality of code or re-execution or reproducibility, reuse of these files. And also we want to classify these data sets in different categories and want to see like how each field of study is doing and how different collections, maybe journal collections are doing in comparison to other data sets on average. And... um, yeah, it turns out the uh, journal datasets are doing much better, and we will learn more about that hopefully yeah. later. Yeah, definitely. So for our listeners, I think go ahead and browse the article and have a read-through. Uh, there's a lot in there, so it's worth definitely checking out. Um, and yeah, I think hopefully by the end of this discussion, we'll get to some ideas about how how we can improve our coding practices. Uh, so yeah, we'll hopefully we'll get to that. Yeah, so let's talk about what did you find in terms of the like, yeah, what barriers to code quality? Uh, what did you what did you see in your in your study? Yeah, we saw a lot of things. So essentially, the experimental setup is such that we retrieve each dataset in a computational workflow that was implemented on AWS. Yeah, there are over thousands of this kind of uh, shared data sets. We retrieve each of them on AWS. And then first we look into uh, the data set itself. We see uh, if there are any documentation files. We see uh, how many code files there are. Um, we see what is the nature of this code. Are there any comments or not? Uh, how, what are the file names? Are they long or short, um, descriptive or not? and uh, how big is the data set and then so first we collect that information and then the second part is that we try to 
do the re-execution of these code files. And then depending on whether it is successful or not, uh, if it is successful, we just write down that result. But if it is not, we conduct automatic code cleaning. So we try to solve the problem by installing potentially other libraries uh, for the code or by removing some of the fixed paths or things like that. And then after automatic code cleaning, we try to re-execute the code files again. And then uh, that's where the experiment essentially ends. Uh, we record both uh, success and, uh, and an error. But we also try to uh, do the same experiment for each file using several different versions of software. And in particular, here we use R. Uh, so we will use uh, yeah, three different versions of R, and in each we will have uh, automatic code cleaning if the code execution fails. So let me try and understand. So the automatic code cleaning is like a script that you run to help clean up the code of the existing code in these data repositories that have been uploaded. Like that might like install packages or do something like that to help resolve some common errors is that is that right yes yes that's uh, completely right and uh, that is because there there are some errors in code that are easy to solve for example there might be a fixed path you know on your system mm. and then there is a command that can resolve this fixed path and then actually reference a file that is inside the data set so mm -hmm. that is an example of an error that is easy to solve and that can really improve the final result. Um, or for example, installing the library, because sometimes people will run the code in an existing environment where they already have everything installed. So for example, if uh, we detect that there are missing libraries, we are going to install them and then the codes in the second run, in the second re-execution run, it will be able to use that library. Yeah, that's so interesting. It's almost like it's like an automatic version of what I think peer reviewers or scientists should be doing, <laughs> which is trying to re-execute other people's code and analyses to make sure their results are robust and reliable. Uh, so that's kind of fun. Uh, yeah, I think it is definitely. I think that reviewing research code, because by its nature, research code is very different than industry code, right? Uh, in uh, in mm. industry, you have like always small increments uh, of change uh, in the code. You have testers, you have reviews, mm. but then in research, we don't have that system typically. So typically the nature of this code is very exploratory. Mm -hmm. I mean, also in research, you uh, sorry, in, in development, you have professional programmers and uh, I Wager to guess most of us researchers are not professional uh, professional <laughs> programmers. Um, uh, we kind of never had to deal with writing code that other people might have to read later. Yes, yeah, never exactly. got the training to do that. Yeah, yeah. And we, we always work with students, right? Students, mm. they're like, okay, they might have some education on code practices and programming, but many will not have. Mm -hmm. So it is always kind of like starting from scratch. Mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So and so, I can see with the code cleaning, it improved things a little bit, right? Yes, definitely, uh, it did. But then turns out then that uh, so the old errors that we were trying to fix with code cleaning, 
they were masking new errors that we see see again. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that somehow, yeah, whatever we do, uh, there is always going to be this problem of code rot, mm-hmm. meaning that uh, just with time, research code and any other code that is kind of stationary in time and not maintained will be harder and harder to yeah, re-execute and to reuse. So yeah, that's why I like to say that transparency is more important than reproducibility. So reproducibility and how we define it right now, it's very binary, right? It can be either, mm. something can be either reproducible, uh, we, are, we have the ability to re-execute code and the methods and get the result that was reported, or it is not reproducible. So somehow mm-hmm. it's uh, binary and things should not be like that. I feel that, you know, it's also depending on how much time you want to invest in reproducing a published study, the more time, the more likely you are to reproduce it, to do it. But then on the other hand side, we can aim to have transparent code and the transparent results. And then by having something be transparent and understandable, another person, for example, you guys, would be able to follow my code uh, from the first line to the last and just maybe rewrite it in a different software mm-hmm. version or a different programming language and just uh, be able to understand what was happening and what yep. was the whole logic. So I think that uh, transparency should be like a long-term strategy for science. Yeah. It's still surprising that even with this, like, let's say binary re-executable metric, only 25% success rate without code cleaning and then 40% with code cleaning. Although I see that you also have 56% of code was was successful with um, both code cleaning, right? Well, best of both. So isn't, is that surprising to you? That Like, to me, that's a very, maybe, I don't know, maybe less than what I thought should be re-executable, maybe more, I don't know. Um, it was definitely very interesting. It was very interesting. And of course, uh, yes, I, I was happy that we were able to to increase the re-execution rate by that much just with automatic code cleaning. Mm. Mm. So yeah, definitely that was interesting. Though, of course, we discussed this as a limitation of the study. We, uh, you know, re-execute the code. We don't know often what script goes uh, first, what goes second. Typically, datasets will have like one or two or three uh, code scripts. So Mm. then we are likely to actually re-execute uh, the first one uh, first, or the only one first. <laughs> right, but right, then right. Uh, so- sometimes we will have also errors coming from just maybe trying to re-execute the second script first or so on. But then, yes, it definitely um, without code cleaning, the re-execution rate was on average 25%, which is pretty low. But then, yeah, with code cleaning, that was a big increase to 40%. Which just also shows that some small changes in code can can really make a big difference. Mm-hmm. You know, just avoiding yeah. fixed paths, installing libraries, defining them uh, early on uh, can make a big difference. So I think that's uh, that's good news for us. Yeah. So how how often did you like, especially when there are more than one data file? Um, sorry, not data file, analysis file. Uh, how often did you find like readme files or other kind of meta information that would help you analyze it yeah that's a great question and that is yeah the first part of the study one of the 
uh, key things was uh, how well described are these uh, data sets? Do mm-hmm. we have documentation? Uh, what are the meta information? So yes, and we have some good results to present. So essentially, on average, we find that almost 60% of the data sets had some documentation. That took some time to how we define documentation files. So mm-hmm. these are definitely readmes. There are also code books and other uh, files. So there are different ways in which people uh, write their documentation. Mm-hmm. So we were trying to be very inclusive and uh, look for all sorts of different documentation files. And yes, they were present almost in uh, 60% of the data sets. Okay, the second thing is that, yeah, that's really good. And I think that, yeah, the second thing is also that we noticed that file name lengths were quite long. So mm-hmm. from 10 to 20 characters, which is also descriptive and telling, you know, mm-hmm. and yeah, you're more likely to understand uh, what these files are if they have a descriptive and a good name. Yeah, and I also, have to get better at that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely, that is so useful. Right. You know, all my experiment files, I'll write uh, my analysis files. It might be like analysis model comparison or yeah. analysis, like and like, and then I'll have multiple analysis model comparisons on my computer, and I'm like, wait, which <laughs> which file, which file am I meant to be using for for this experiment or this this project or so on and so forth? Uh, yeah, I need to get yeah. better at, at file file names. Yeah, I think that is maybe one of the main advices I was given and I would also give to have like a good file name. I think that is also, you know, for science, but also like just for everyday life. I remember (laughs) I was looking for a tax file from last year and I just couldn't find it for my life. And then I, yes, had I named it better, it would have been searchable and so easy to find. Yes. So that was very frustrating, you know, yeah, could lead to a waste of time unless you think about that in advance. So that is definitely a, an advice that we should take to heart. We'll come back to it, but yeah, that's fun. Okay. Yeah. What else, what else did you learn about um, trying to re-execute everyone's code? Yeah, there were many interesting things. For example, code re-execution is directly dependent on uh, libraries used in the code. So, mm-hmm. yes, we were able also to study what libraries people use. And uh, yes, of course, uh, most uh, for data science will use uh, visualization, plotting, data wrangling, statistical analysis libraries. But we were also curious whether scientists use some of the libraries that are considered to be libraries for good coding practices. And these libraries include, you know, code testing or runtime environment libraries or mm-hmm. workflow libraries and turns out we could not find like almost any single use of this uh, good wow. libraries mm-hmm. so that was that was surprising so so is the implication that scientists are writing a bunch of code for their projects but not testing their code like not running unit tests in their code and not doing this kind of stuff <laughs> for uh for the experiments and things like for their projects yes i'm afraid that's the case Though, I think <laughs> that, I, well okay i think that there are other ways to test code right maybe yeah, they sure, will, sure. so yes maybe they will write many you know print prints uh statements everywhere in the code 
or they will write many comments. We do see comments uh, in code very frequently. So I mm -hmm. think on average there, 20% of a code file is comments, which is like pretty high. I think mm -hmm. definitely much higher than what is considered normal in the industry. But of course this is debatable. But yes, um, definitely something that we would consider to be good coding practices like unit tests. We do not see that in, in no, research code. It just also shows the nature of research code, the exploratory nature, something that we already touched upon. Yeah, yeah, and also directly reflects on the lack of training that scientists get on like code development, like mm -hmm. you know, writing functions that are unit tested or are maintained and so on and so forth within the within the um, experimental setting, you know, in, in experimental context. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, there's some some places to improve. <laughs> um, one of the reasons I came past this study was it was shared a lot on Twitter was because of uh, a figure where it uh, showed the re-execution rate <laughs> per field of study. And, you know, for example, we saw like in the social sciences, it was about 40% success rate for execution. Did you notice any differences between like subdomains or research domains, things like that? Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, we report on that. And uh, there are many data sets belonging to different fields of study. So uh, obviously social sciences and then other sciences. <laughs> but what is important to mention here uh, is that Dataverse was initially created as a data repository for social sciences. So most of the data sets actually belong mm -hmm. to social sciences. And then only later on, it changed its focus from a social science data repository to general purpose data repository. So though it was a natural question for us to ask, what is the re-execution rate per field of study? It does not really give us a full picture on what the actual rates are. So it's a good figure, it's a good discussion, it's a good question to ask, I think. But because of our sample is coming from social sciences, we are not able to really get the full uh, picture. So for example, I want to emphasize that some of the other sciences like physics, we, our sample is very small. It is like less than 20 samples, where social sciences, we have like almost 3000 data sets. So, yeah, it's an interesting picture, but we need to like really be careful how we talk about that. You also looked at the Harvard Dataverse, right? Which is is that exclusive to Harvard researchers, or who is using it? It is so Harvard Dataverse is uh, one of the Dataverse repositories. So mm -hmm. there are Dataverse installations all over the globe. Uh, Harvard ah, Dataverse see. is the biggest one and the first one that was deployed. Mm -hmm. Uh, however, it is not only used at Harvard. It can be it can be used by anyone who wants to publish oh, okay. their datasets. And then, in, in particular, there are uh, there are collaborations in between Harvard Dataverse and journals, different journals that have their own collections in Harvard Dataverse. Mm -hmm. So uh, journals can publish um, uh, their dataset collections in Harvard Dataverse. Uh, also, anyone at Harvard can publish their datasets at Dataverse, but also any other researcher or scientist worldwide can decide uh, if they want to have their own collection and publish 
uh, their data sets in Harvard Dataverse. So it is open to public. Uh, there are some, of course, you cannot just uh, mm-hmm. release anything. It needs to be a data set that is related to science. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it is open and it is the biggest uh, installation. That's why we did the study there. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of data sets and a lot of data files to to sift through for this for this paper. So, yeah, it's it's I think it really does capture a cross section of science. Like, yes, there's um, I guess we can say it really captures what's happening in social sciences, at least in psychology and maybe economics and so on and so forth, where the that we're seeing not all the code is being re-executable and reproducible. And so, yeah, maybe we should focus on trying to improve um, the codes uh, in these in this area. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I wish, I wish we could say that <laughs> in this study, uh, you know, just like pointing out to different uh, fields of study and, uh, and telling, yeah, or, you know, we have evidence uh, to think that you can improve here and here. Right, mm-hmm. but right. in this particular case, though, uh, yeah, I've also seen this plot, <laughs> like the, the yes. plot with different fields of study, on Twitter. It's not; it does not tell us a full picture. I think, right. but there is one result that I like to talk about, and that is actually exciting and telling. Yeah, and I think it. that's like my favorite result from this study. Yeah. So I mentioned that different scientific journals have collections in Harvard Dataverse. Mm-hmm. It uh, turns out that on average, we can see that uh, the data sets belonging in journal collections have higher re-execution rate than other uh, data sets. That means that journals do something better than average. And uh, <laughs> when we look a little bit what? more closely... <laughs> well, maybe, yeah. When we look a little bit more closely into that, we can classify different journals according to their data sharing policy. So journals have, in the last decade or maybe longer, decided to introduce a data sharing policy, essentially requiring their authors to share data and code together with the paper. And some journals have flexible policy, saying that journals are encouraged maybe to share their data set but some have stricter data policies, saying that uh, the not the journals, but the authors are encouraged, or in this case, required to mm-hmm. share their data sets. Or in uh, other cases, they the journals say that uh, the data sets will be reviewed or verified. So not only that the authors are required to share data and code, but this will be reviewed and verified. Turns out that the strictness of the policy is correlated with a success rate, with the re-execution success rate. Or in other words, the stricter the policy, the more re-executable results, which mm-hmm. I think is really interesting. That means that really uh, presents evidence that uh, the data sharing policy strictness is uh, conducive or helpful in uh, code re-execution and code reusability. So yes, that's uh, great for the journals. I think that um... right. I wonder. I wonder. <laughs> number one, how many journals are doing the review and verification and incorporating that strictness into their policy? But it is a good sign that these kind of policies or whatever they're implementing does seem to improve the re-execution of the code files. That's pretty cool. 
I just wonder how many journals were gonna value that in their in their in their um yeah. setup. <laughs> um, well, yeah, okay. We don't have that many, so maybe we have um two or three that have very strict policies. For example, political analysis, uh, AJPS uh, is the two that have um, the highest um, policy uh, strictness. But then, yeah, there are other ones that uh, maybe just encourage uh, authors to share their data and code and still we can see improvement. So I think I think that's definitely a step in good direction. In the right direction, yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking within like psychology and the premier journals in psychology, I think most of them don't really, they have encouraging policies. They don't really have required, they don't require uh data be shared or um, code be shared it's sort of um, the classic uh, materials will be made available upon request kind of situation um, <laughs> so it's yeah it's interesting <laughs> uh, maybe this maybe journals should take us more of a stand towards trying to include re-execution of code in their acceptance criteria or in their review criteria yeah that's definitely what this study shows yeah nice uh, I guess this is a good spot to maybe talk about because um, in the at the end of your paper you talk about what what could be improved upon like what are some good practices for coding that might help research code be re executable. Um, do you want to yeah go through some of those recommendations? Yes, absolutely. So I yeah we do have uh, several recommendations for scientists for journals uh, repositories also at the end of the paper so i think that's the favorite part of the paper <laughs> uh, but then also i have some that are just kind of like useful from my own experience and that we already mentioned so maybe the first one i will reiterate is name your files uh, <laughs> in a good <laughs> way <laughs> whether that's a text file or a code file it should have a good name i think maybe a good practice is also to uh, have some sort of like numbering scheme so you know calling your pre-processing files like one or a thousand or a hundred mm -hmm. denoting whether it should be executed first second or last oh i see i see right uh what is a good what is an example of a good like file name like what should we avoid and what should we include in our descriptive file names uh, well, okay, I mentioned um, if you have several code files that then chain one after the other one, um, you can decide to call all of your pre-processing data files with a prefix 100 and then mm -hmm. have like 101, 102, 103, mm. uh, or... Um, so would you recommend like 110, rather having... 120. Mm -hmm. Sorry, uh, would you recommend rather having uh, one large file that you can run from start to end and then you go from data cleaning all the way to your final t-test or would you say more smaller files to see all the intermittent steps? Yeah, I think that uh, having smaller files is good. Smaller files mm -hmm. that have good names. Um, is better to understand the flow that's called like a higher modularity, right? Mm -hmm. So it is then easier to potentially understand what each script is doing. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I think, you know, this is not like 
very black and white. In some cases, maybe mm-hmm. having like one long file, it's going to be easier. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. What else? What other uh, code practices do you think would be uh, that <laughs> researchers should ben- would benefit from uh, implementing? When studying the, the code from Harvard Dataverse, we see many of the code files look like a wall of text. Mm-hmm. And that happens when uh, one line of code is then repeated many, many times. You oh, know, yes. <laughs> like literally get like a wall yes. of text. So my recommendation would be don't copy your code. Uh, don't copy and paste your code, but just copy it and create the function. Yeah, write, write a function. <laughs> write a function, so, exactly. Uh, I look back at my old code when I was starting in science and... For example, a classic one was I would uh, have different scripts creating different figures. Like they were all bar plots, but I would like copy and paste the same bar plot code over and over and over and over and over. <laughs> and I could have just written a function that was like produce, create bar plot, and just called that function without mm. writing writing this code a thousand times. And it's really important because if you hard code any variables into these copy and paste code, you have to change it in every iteration that you've copied and pasted. So if you yeah. change a variable name or whatever, you've got to go through. And that's a common place to make a mistake where you forget to change or you miss a place but you didn't change the right variable. And then all of a sudden, you're trying to find an error that uh, you put into the code that isn't going to spit out uh, an error message because it's still executing. You just don't know. Uh, you just haven't changed the variable. You haven't checked the variable names and such. So yeah. yeah exactly. I learned that one the hard way. Definitely write <laughs> write functions when you can. <laughs> yeah, one hundred percent. I yeah, I just agree. That's like such a typical spot to, to make mistake mm-hmm. uh, because you just forget to, to change some small variable and then you know like you have a potentially an error in your code. So definitely, I think and plots are some of the nicest places to mm-hmm. parameterize by passing these variables of what you want to plot. And then you're able to loop through different variables or different things and then just having many plots at once. Yeah, so definitely that's a good idea. Yeah, likewise, um, with uh, especially with plots, I found that putting all the, um, all the design elements, defining them at the very beginning of my analysis file, um, allows me to very quickly cycle through some designs, you know, like adjusting the colors of the plots when I find that, oh, this mm. doesn't work quite out. Um, it can save you a lot of time. Yeah, and uh, I have to mention now, like I'm going to call new recommendation for code practices. Uh, I think that the key one that this study teaches us is to capture your code dependencies. So mm, I think yeah. that's the that's the key one, the one that I think is most significant when it comes to uh, reproducibility and reuse and code re-execution understanding yeah, what, what what does that mean like what uh just for some of our listeners who might not be more familiar with computer science or co- the code that they're writing now their early career for example uh yeah what does what do you mean by code dependencies absolutely so you have your script and it will likely work with one or one or more uh programming language versions <laughs> that you used so for example in r it is important to capture uh, what version of R you used. And you're likely also using other libraries. So you're mm-hmm. installing 
you know, plotting libraries or uh, other libraries. So it is important to keep information of these libraries and th their version, because these libraries are often not really compatible with one another, and mm -hmm. sometimes will create a conflict, and you will not be able to recreate the same environment unless you capture the libraries that you used. So that's a really significant thing. Yeah, Python does this really well. So having a whole new virtual environment as a workspace where you where you can be totally in control of what libraries you use and what Python version you use. Yeah. Uh, how how do you capture your code dependencies? Like, what should a researcher do to make sure that happens? Uh, so, for example, in Python. Uh, that's uh, relatively easy. Uh, there is pip freeze command where you can export your uh, used libraries and their versions. And mm -hmm. typically, uh, the way how these are exported in a file called requirements.txt, and then one can, uh, the same very, very easy uh, using pip, install that libraries from requirements.txt file. So, would you talk, you mentioned virtual environments. Uh, so for those who might not be like, let's say familiar with what that is, um, cause I only learned about virtual environments, maybe not so long ago. Um, that's like being able to set up a new fresh, like computer, <laughs> uh, on your machine so that they can run the experiment just by setting up that same virtual environment or downloading that virtual environment, let's say, uh, so that the, you can run the code exactly the way that you ran it, for example. Does, does that is that a good explanation of virtual environments? I would even say it's easier than that. It's not like a whole new computer. I think it sounds intimidating, but then they are really not, <laughs> because I uh, most of the time I use uh, virtual environments in the same folder as my analysis study, and uh, they can be uh, activated or deactivated, and then you always have for that particular study all the dependencies that you need. So I think, uh, yeah, one thing that I would say here is that they might sound intimidating, but the truth is that this is just like maybe no more than, you know, four or five lines of code that you always use. So creating your environment, activating, deactivating it, exporting it and installing things in it. Oh. And that's pretty much it. Yeah. What do you think about like setting up like dockers for your environments and things like that. Uh, is that a, a good step to go? Yes, definitely. So that's uh, maybe like a next step. The way I, how I think about it is that if you use like a single programming language, say Python, you can just use Python environments. And I think that will be like good enough in most cases. But then if you use multiple programming languages, if you uh, need some other software for your study, you should consider using Docker containers. Cool. Hmm. Uh, I want to stress to our audience that a lot of these like benefits that come from doing all of these good coding practices are actually, you get, you gain the benefits. So like, for example, we talked about how naming files descriptive saves you time because in the future when you forget about the code that you're writing um you can go search it up and find it and yeah, things totally. like that um and it's uh i uh, uh we at our uchicago reproducibility group we had a little like coding um session uh, one of the computer science 
um, people, researchers, PhD students, <laughs> who's a whiz at coding, kind of like went through all of this for us. And what he talked about this rule, so shout out to John Villette. Uh, he, he talked about this like 2080 rule. Like you just put in 20% of extra effort to make your code better and reproducible and whatever. And the benefits are like 80%. <laughs> you get you get so much return on those improvements because, and it's you, because you are the one that's looking at your code all the time and so on and so forth. Um, yes, yeah, so I highly recommend our, our audience to invest time in this. It's well worth it. Like, um, I, I do not appreciate, but understand how long it took for you to say people after computer scientists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was trying to find the correct uh, descriptor, but I couldn't find it in my head though, in enough time. Yeah, no, so like, I think one thing we haven't touched upon is uh, writing comments. You mentioned like in your study, you saw like 60% of comment of the code were comments. Um, not that like, many, no, not, not oh, 60. I think uh, maybe around 20%. Oh, 20%. 20% yeah. of oh, code okay. was, was comments. So yeah, uh, I think another tip for our audience is to write comments while you're <laughs> writing the code because that's when you're mo thinking most about the code so you'll remember what you're trying to do and what you're doing rather than not doing it rushing to the results or the data or the analyses to present to your supervisor <laughs> and then yeah. uh, coming back to the code and forgetting what the what each line does or how you set it up absolutely but also you know having an intuitive variable name is also as good as having a code line comment. So I would think, uh, yeah, try to have intuitive variable names, but then if that doesn't work, add a comment on what the, the line does or what that piece of code does. But then ad additional advice, I would say, uh, try to seek a code review, like ask your peers mm. or coworkers to review your code. They will probably point out some things in the code that you were overlooking. Maybe they will find a small mistake or they will, mm -hmm. or they might point out some things that, you know, should be better I documented. Find it, I find it so intimidating. Like it's still scary when you go without someone to look at your code. Cause like, please, <laughs> like, I know sometimes this might not be the best code in the world, but like, you know, please review it and like, be kind, <laughs> uh, tell me how I can make this code better. Uh, but I highly, it's, it's really helpful. It's, ca it catches not just like errors. Um, that's not the main goal. Like that's not the only goal of code review. It's like, you know, is your code readable? Is it transparent? Does like, could you get it to work? Uh, does that make sense? You know, all this stuff is, all these mm -hmm. questions can be answered through code review. Um, yeah. Do either of you have good, like good experiences with code review? I think, uh. Yeah, somehow it, it it can be very frustrating <laughs> to review, yeah, research code. Uh, in industry, you have always like small increments of code, and they're constantly reviewed and tested, and then you and then multiple people know exactly what uh, the code base does. But then in science, we, the nature of uh, programming is like exploratory coding. And then if someone reviews your code, that will likely be that you're already completely finished with it. It is a final product and uh, the other person, the reviewer, is supposed to somehow understand everything just by looking at it. So I was thinking that it must be like very frustrating to review a code that you have never seen before. And I was going through 
mm. code reviews at the Journal of Open Source Software. So Journal of Open Source Software is a completely open uh, source journal where you can publish um, your code, your software, in mm-hmm. a one, two, three page papers. So the aim is to promote research software and just generally software as a first class product in science and to facilitate software citation. So the thing is with a paper description of your research code, you would submit your research code, source code, and reviewers are expected to review both the paper and code. And I was thinking that reviewers might be frustrated because uh, they see this code for the first time and they're somehow expected to understand what it does. And looking through um, these reviews, the sentiment is actually quite positive, or definitely it's not negative. (laughs) Even though like my primary hypothesis was that it would be negative. So that was surprising. And I think uh, a positive result. Of course, I think that people will not... uh, you know, just out of the blue, share negative comments in this con- context. But still, um, the sentiment was mostly positive. Hmm. That's really good. That's, ex- yeah, that, that's encouraging. Um, yeah, I think, I think a lot of things around computing science and computing practices are daunting. Like, you know, it, you kind of, it's vulnerable. Like, you're putting your code off and for people to look at it to like, oh, yes. criticize, yeah. I suppose. But, you know, it, it's nice to know that it's... Uh, you know, there's positive. It's mostly positive and mostly trying to like, you know, improve the code and help. You know, um, yeah. Any any last pieces of advice for our, our early career audience regarding the coding practices? I think we went through everything that uh, we went through everything that I wanted to emphasize. You can do a quick review. Yeah. So file names that are descriptive, uh, and maybe mm-hmm. indicate the order. Like through a numbering system, uh, descriptive variable names as well, uh, even in place of comments. So if you have a good descriptive variable name, maybe you don't need the comment, um, but also comment as you code so that you remember what you're doing. Um, mm-hmm. Think about your code dependencies. Try and make sure you know what uh, libraries and what uh, package versions or software versions you're using and have that save somewhere maybe using yeah um, don't copy freeze. and paste your code uh, but copy and create and... a function yeah <laughs> yes write a function yes this is I need to, <laughs> thank you for the reminder i need to do that myself <laughs> um, make, make sure you write functions instead See, of copying and pasting code can, everywhere like ask someone um, to have a look at your code Yes, code. That's mm-hmm. also what we see in uh, the study is yeah. that the journals that have some code review had better results. Yeah. Uh, cool. That's great. Uh, so hopefully our early career researcher audience is you know empowered to go take this on. It's worth it. I promise. It's worth putting. Definitely. I mean, there are also other recommendations in the paper itself. I also mm-hmm. encourage everyone to check those out. Yeah. Nice. We could not cover everything yeah, yeah. just now. That's a lot. A lot can be done. But remember, just 20% will give you 80% return. It's, it's worth it. One thing I would like to... Um, well, it's not really a recommendation for your code, but I think it kind of uh, falls into a similar thing. Um, cite the packages that you use. Um, especially if you're mm. using R, you can just type in citation and then the package name, and you get both the citation that you can put in your paper if 
you know your package contributed uh, if a package contributed to it uh, and that also tells you the version of the package you're currently use using um and one thing i recently found that's why this is on my mind there is this r package called grateful which basically you oh. uh use the 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 um the the main command of it which is uh, site packages um and it just throws you out all the packages that you're using that you've currently loaded into a nice uh, bib file and you can copy that into your own and then you have all the citations and versions uh, ready of everything that you used. Wow, amazing. That's great. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I think that looks that really useful. Great. Yeah, really cool. And you're also yeah helping all the people who contributed to those packages get some like attribution. Yes, exactly. I think that's yes. great. Yeah. Do we, do we have anything else we want to cover or share? Maybe for the last segment of the <laughs> podcast, I would say that um, reproducibility and good coding practices and documentation take some time overhead and take a, a little bit of patience. But then I will conclude with a sentence that you repeated Will a few times, is that just 20% of the effort can really get you 80% of the benefits. So... Yeah. definitely worth it yeah um that's a really good closing statement all right uh yeah do you want to uh share with uh our audience where they can follow you or find you Anna? yes um, i am uh, i am on all social media <laughs> on linkedin and twitter in github uh, so my handles are everywhere a trisovic or a trisovic um <laughs> so the first letter of my name and then the surname Great. I love the French pronunciation. Okay. Uh, <laughs> 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 hey, yeah. uh, Jan, uh, where can we find you? So you can find me primarily on um, uh, Mastodon um, at vornhagenjb at hci.social. And I am on Twitter while it's syncing uh, at <laughs> Wilnyam and also at Mastodon, Wilnyam at fedyscience.org. And I'm going to shout out my GitHub because I've never shouted out my GitHub. There's not much on there, but uh, I'm at William Nyam on GitHub. Yeah, I uh, hope that was useful. Thank you for, for listening. Uh, catch, catch you next time. It was really great to talk to you guys. Yeah, thanks for being here, Anna. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.